After the end of the Second World War, America strode triumphant, unmatched the world over, in surviving capital stock, industrial capacity, and economic and military power. No other industry epitomized this power more than steel, with the saying, where steel goes, the nation goes, capturing the alignment between the incentives of the business, working, and political classes at the time. All the more tragic, then, did the decline of the industry and the second largest company, Bethlehem Steel, falling into bankruptcy in 2001, reflect the post-industrial weakness of America. Once employing 167,000 in 1957, by the 1980s, Bethlehem was employing only 35,000 and supporting 70,000 pensioners. Eventually, these pension and other union restrictions, in addition to moribund management, led to the company's closure. When business legend Jack Welsh was once asked if he could have rescued the company, he quipped, I don't think Christ himself could have saved it. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. Military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time, dear. Me, the father, the twin, the father, Hello and welcome to the myth of the 20th century. Uh, today I have uh, my co-host Hans. Nick will be joining hopefully in about five or ten minutes. Uh, Hank couldn't join us, but we do have a very special guest, uh, Miles Poland, uh, and he has a background in the steel industry. And this is one of my uh, hobby horses. I've always loved heavy industry and things like that. So uh, bear with me if you aren't interested in this uh, type of thing. But what's cool about this company? is you can actually see what the company produces. This is unlike a lot of what uh, American corporations produce today, which is digital, which is advertising, which is services-based. This is really a bedrock industrial American company that was very famous in the day. Uh, And so I'm very pleased to talk about Bethlehem Steel. Uh, So, Miles, thanks for coming on. Um, Let's let's hear about how you're in the industry. Uh, Why don't you tell us... um, a little bit about that, why you got into it, why it's important, and what uh, what's the deal with Bethlehem Steel? What's the deal with the steel? Hi, everyone. My name is Miles Poland. Um, I got into manufacturing, I think, a little over a decade ago at this point. And uh, until very recently, I actually worked for one of Bethlehem Steel's uh, successor companies. The uh, Bethlehem Steel Corporation actually went out of business in 2003 and sold off to... Um, another company called Wemco and they're a big um, like overarching umbrella corporation that just owns a whole bunch of things. So I ended up working for them for a bunch of years until a couple of years ago when I moved across the state, I'm out in uh, the Western half of Pennsylvania at this point. But um, yeah, the, uh, the importance of steel since this invention, it, it literally cannot be overstated. It's in everything, or at least it was until fairly recently. And just about, Every every country on the planet that can make steel somehow finds a way to make steel. 
the interesting part about Bethlehem Steel is that it's really a microcosm of not just American industry as a whole, but also America as a nation. So sort of the folly of Bethlehem Steel is the folly of America. The success of Bethlehem Steel is the success of America, industry in general. Um, its relationship to labor, um, getting fat, dumb, and happy, and, and just pissing everything away. Pardon my language. I don't know if that was inappropriate or not. No, no, it's fine. I think that's been my impression as well. Um, and I was just chatting with Miles before we got started. Um, Bethlehem Steel is, is not the only U.S. steel company that uh, was very important. I mean, Carnegie uh, made his money in making steel, and then J.P. Morgan bought him out and formed U.S. Steel. And U.S. Steel still exists. I think it's a ticker symbol USX on the stock exchange. So you can still check them out. They, I believe, are, if, I, if Nucor hasn't passed them, they are the largest U.S. Steel company. But Miles, I don't know if that's correct. And Nucor has been the kind of hot stock in the steel industry for 30 years. So at this point, I wouldn't be surprised if they've surpassed them. Um, but uh, And then they have uh, Wilbur Ross's group, which I think was basically just a more of a trade. He was a private equity guy, and Wilbur Ross is now in the Trump administration. He was uh, sort of known also in the Bush administration right around when these companies were um, having difficulty in the early 2000s. Uh, he got the Bush administration to impose steel tariffs, and it's sort of similar to what Trump has done. And with Wilbur Ross working uh, within the administration now officially, a lot of people have accused him of conflicts of interest because he owns a lot of the sort of old heavy industry type companies like steel. But he bought up, I believe, a portion of at least the Sparrows Point operation, which we mentioned uh, last week when we had James LaFonda on. That's in Baltimore. Uh, and that's known for uh, ship production. And so steel, um, I don't know if it's just Bethlehem, but obviously ships today are made of steel. Uh, their hulls are much more sturdy that way as opposed to wood when if you run into a rock or something you're pretty much dead uh, so steel became the standard and this is also one of the amazing things about how ships work it's like you're telling me something as heavy as steel actually floats it's obviously water displacement that makes it happen but uh, so they were really big um, in baltimore and then wilbur ross's international steel group bought up uh, pieces of it after it went bankrupt, and then they ended up reselling it to mainly foreign companies. Uh, so the U.S. steel industry has really kind of uh, dwindled since its peak in probably the 70s, maybe the 60s. Uh, and the U.S. steel industry used to be so important that the presidents uh, of the country would actually watch how the uh, the performance of the industry was doing they would have meetings believe it or not this is something that just doesn't happen anymore but uh, I think Truman had to intervene uh, using some obscure law labor law to get the steel workers to stop striking because steel was so integral to the economy back in the 50s uh, and it, it's just changed a lot um, I think one of the interesting statistics that I I read from researching this was the industry um, the steel industry overall has only experienced uh, from the 50s to when Bethlehem went bankrupt in 2002-2003 era. Uh, the industry has only experienced a 200% increase in producer prices, like wholesale prices for steel. So when they they made something in 1950, they could sell it for uh, you know an I beam or something. They could sell it for 
thousand dollars. That same I Beam two thousand three only went for two thousand dollars. Yet the consumer price index has gone up by five hundred percent since then. So they have been really having difficulty keeping up with basically just inflation, uh, and so they've had to really figure out how to survive and a lot of companies didn't obviously uh and their labor costs this is really what i think probably killed bethlehem what had gone up by 900 percent. so imagine you're running a business and your cost of uh production or your uh not not your cost of production but yeah your cost of production has gone up by 900 percent. but but your sales have only gone up by 200 percent. so your your costs at a certain point are going to overtake your your revenues and then you're losing money every year uh, so that's never a situation you want to be in in business and it's obviously not sustainable uh, we'll maybe get into why later but that's sort of why the company is sort of an icon of industrial uh, greatness back in the day making you know golden gate bridge uh, george washington bridge 80 percent of the skyscrapers in new yorkers uh, once said said to have uh, been made with Bethlehem Steel uh, to going to uh, the, the, the current state that it, that it's in, and it's uh, it's quite sad, but uh, it's it's a metaphor I think for America, as Miles was saying. Um, so maybe we can go back to the history of how the company started. Um, Miles, if you want to jump in, feel free. But my understanding is a guy named uh, Charles Schwab, uh, humorously enough, not the discount broker, but a guy named Charles Schwab actually founded the company. Uh, and it was uh, based in Lehigh, Pennsylvania, where there's a lot of uh, coal reserves, if I'm not mistaken. And this is also where Carnegie was huge. And I think they did that because, uh, and Pittsburgh obviously became the, the real center of steel uh, historically in America, I think because of this concentration of companies. Um, the advantages, I guess, were obviously the resources, but I think the waterways made it uh, possible to transport uh, the raw materials of steel making, which are basically a fuel to heat up the iron ore, which is the other ingredient. Uh, and then you obviously have to have a, a huge operation to melt this stuff. And then once it's melted, you cast it or you forge it, uh, which we don't need to get into. But uh, I'd love to actually talk about how some of the finished work does because Miles actually is a machinist. And so his role is basically once the stuff rolls off the rolling mill uh, and it's like red hot and it's, it's cooling down, you kind of get these standardized pieces, which are plates or sheet metal. Uh, and then they, they have to cut it up. And then the customer has something like that, uh, that he wants either for, for structural stuff, it's pretty easy to visualize. For automotive, that's kind of a more complex thing. You probably don't machine much for that. That They do that themselves. But for structural stuff, uh, and please jump in here, I would imagine that you're going to have to take the architectural drawings uh, with the measurements, and then you're going to have to put it through various mills and lays and things like that to get the the steel that was coming out of the manufacturing process that is more that's designed to be extremely efficient uh, to produce it at lowest cost. And then you can't anticipate exactly what the customer is going to need. So that at that point, once it's cooled, you then basically like drill off the pieces of metal that are uh, in excess of that from like the, the square shape of the raw material. Um, so that's, that's the, the steel business. And, uh, 
Miles, tell tell me what you understand at least about why it was located in Lehigh. Like, why is this such a great place for all this steel activity? Well, everything you mentioned is is true and very much so in spades. In the Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, you have access to a very particular waterway, the Delaware River, which pours out into the uh, the Atlantic Ocean, and so that gives you access to the entire. Uh, that gives you access to basically the whole rest of the world on that side of the globe. You have access to all of Europe. You have access to the entire continental United States, Mexico, Canada, South America, if you want to go down there, for instance, um, the Caribbean, yada, yada, so on and so forth. And uh, with the opening of the Panama Canal, you could then just go down a little bit south, go through that, and then you have access to the entire that side of the world. Um, What's interesting about Pennsylvania in particular and the area in which Bethlehem Steel kind of grew up is that even before the Bethlehem Steel Corporation became a thing, you had a lot of these little towns uh, which were very focused on cottage industry. So, uh, for instance, coke making or mining. Uh, there were a lot of coal towns in the area. In fact, a little bit further north, uh, Jim Thorpe, there is a massive coal town. All of those are coal towns, uh, Walnut Port, Hazleton, stuff like that. In fact, the area that if anyone here is uh, familiar with the video game Silent Hill, uh, there is a town in northern Pennsylvania called Citralia with a giant underground coal fire. And there are rumors that uh, the aesthetics of Silent Hill are based on Citralia, Pennsylvania, which is now an abandoned town because there's a giant coal fire underground. They can't put it out. Is ongoing. Uh, so you, Did I hear yeah, that right? It, it's, it's, yeah, it's ongoing. It's how, going. how is it not being starved of oxygen? Uh, it's the, a lot of the ground up there is very porous. And so there's a lot of outlets. And so it just keeps pulling in whatever it needs. Plus there's plenty of coal up there. So, right. Well, I think that explains, I think the geographic, uh, strategy there. I mean, they were trying to get arguably close to the Appalachian coal, which is still extremely plentiful. I, I, last I heard it's, it's estimated to have 400 or so years worth of reserves for the United States. Uh, at least at current consumption levels. Now, that could obviously change if it went up or down, but uh, there's a tremendous amount of coal. And uh, you mentioned Coke, which actually is a a slightly modified version of coal, which it's very simple, actually, but I've always uh, been intrigued by that term. It's not Coca-Cola, it's not cocaine, it's Coke. Uh, it's, It's coking fuel. And my understanding is the way they make it is they take coal, and then they, they they heat it up basically in a very low oxygen environment. And a lot of the uh, the magnates that were connected to the steel industry actually uh, became very wealthy just doing that. And if you look at where the old, uh, and I should say the integrated steel mills, this is uh, an integrated process where you have the, the fuel and the iron ore going in uh, to make uh, steel out of a blast furnace typically. They have different processes now, uh, but as opposed to the newer techniques, which are mainly electric using scrap, but the old school way, there was no scrap. You had to actually make everything out of rocks, you know, the, the rusted stuff in the, in the ground, you'd pull it out, that's ore, and then you have to clean it up as much as you can, but it's real dirty, uh, and then your fuel is the other component that you add in. You have to heat it up to about 2,800 degrees, almost 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit to, to melt the stuff. Uh, but the, the reason they use Coke is coal is, is very smoky, uh, and it also doesn't reach, um, I believe, as high a temperature. But uh, that may not be 100% true, but the, the cleanliness aspect of it and the energy density aspect of it is also very critical. So you can have uh, more, more heat produced with a smaller quantity 
um, at the at the site that you're at. And this stuff is very energy intensive. So the higher density, the better. There's the reason they use diesel as opposed to gasoline for long distance, uh, long haul trucking, because you can just pack more energy into that tank and, and they still have to fuel um, fuel up, uh, obviously, every so often. But the, the further you can go on a certain size of, uh, of fuel, the better. And uh, an interesting uh, statistic I also saw was that if, uh, if you made steel the, the old-fashioned way, I mean, steel's been around for a long time, like the Iron Age and, and steel's been known that basically steel is just, um, there's, a, there's a particular amount of carbon uh, within the, the grain structure of the metal uh, that makes steel much harder and more resistant to, to brittleness and breaking than iron, which is um, basically, you know, the main component of the chemical component of steel. But you add in a little bit of carbon, like, you know, 1%, 2%, and then you make this this fantastic uh, structural product, uh, and it, it, traditionally it was for weapons uh, because they couldn't churn out the the sheer quantities that were happening in the industrial age for making buildings. I mean, they back in the medieval era, they they would make weapons because it was an extremely slow process. It'd take a, a very skilled craftsman, a blacksmith, to pound these things out, uh, and they would make wrought iron, and they would pound on it and kind of forge it. Um, but the old way of actually fueling this fire was using uh, charcoal. And, and this is something that you can sort of imagine happening. There's a cool channel called a primitive technology uh, that actually shows this, this actual like old school uh, forge where you basically make a first, you have to make the charcoal, which is, which is wood that similar to coal turning into Coke, you basically heat it up. So you kind of get rid of a lot of the uh, the volatile aspects of the fuel, and that um, that product is a higher density fuel that can that can burn in a more controlled, I think, hotter way uh, when you're actually trying to get those really high temperatures uh, in the uh, the high two thousands range uh, Fahrenheit to get your um, your steel melted. So they would do it with tree wood uh, and hardwood is better because it's, it's again, it's more dense and so you get more energy out of it. But you'd have to pump in one acre, an entire acre of hardwood forest uh, and up to, to keep a mill running or at the time they keep a furnace going for uh, 24 hours. And if you can imagine when the, the railroads were, were being built and when America was industrializing, when steel was going into some buildings, I would imagine, eventually skyscrapers obviously took over a lot of the steel consumption. But railroads are really the, the biggest consumer of, of steel. And Carnegie was making a killing on this. And Bethlehem was, was too, because they actually invented a very particular process that helped them uh, solve a problem with, with rails uh, that were actually curling up and, and derailing trains. And so they hired a guy named Fritz who was uh, basically just a self-taught mechanical engineer. And he came up with a, a faster rolling process that kept the, uh, cause when, so, so miles, like when you're machining something, you have to, um, well, you're doing that when it's cold, but when they, when they roll the steel, let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, it has to be done within a time frame. when that stuff is liquid, when it's super red hot, it's poured out of a ladle, and then it goes into a mold and then it cools and it starts hardening obviously uh, when it's getting cold. But if you don't shape it correctly within the right time frame, you can 
And if you try to shape it later after it's hard, you can actually introduce a lot of weakness into the, the material. And so that's what happened to, uh, to the industry when they were rolling out these, uh, these rails. Uh, the, their machinery wasn't uh, fast enough uh, to, or long enough to roll the, the rails properly. And so when the workers had to move the rail back onto the machine to roll it a couple more times, the thing would harden up. And then it, once it was actually out in the field on the railroad, uh, the thing would sometimes warp. And then it would actually peel up, and they called them uh, snakeheads. And then the, the train would run over it and then flip off the track and kill people. Um, so that's kind of very important. Um, but, yeah, I'm kind of going on and on about all the differences in, in techniques. But this stuff has taken centuries to really perfect. And it was I think it was uh, in the U.K. where they really got it right, where the Industrial Revolution started. And it was uh, Carnegie, who was Scottish, who had sort of look back at the UK to study how that was uh, being done. And he would, people like that would come to America and realize all the resources that were available to them. And all of this opportunity to build the nation out was before them. And, and steel became such an integral part of the economy because of that. Um, so I just wanted to, to kind of give a little bit of detail on some of the nuances of production and, and it has changed. Uh, but Miles, what would you say is, kind of like the breakout uh, moment in the U.S. steel industry, or, or at least in Bethlehem uh, history, where it made this industry as important as it was, uh, maybe it was technology, maybe it was an individual, uh, who would you say and what would you say contributed to making steel uh, important during the industrial build-out of America? Uh, during... I would say Dale Carnegie is probably the best example of just the utter game changing in the steel industry. Up until Dale Carnegie sort of integrated a lot of the processes involved in steel making, it was sort of a cottage industry. You still had very small shops building huge quantities of rail, uh, building steel tools. Uh, a lot of this stuff was almost bespoke at the time. Dale Carnegie had the bright idea to put everything sort of under one roof, control the whole process, continually improve upon it. And be able to bring in and hire out people as he needed them rather than relying on contracting with individual craftsmen who, whether they either don't feel like doing it anymore or misfortune befalls them, there's a lot of industries in the steel in, uh, injuries in the steel industry, um, just couldn't, couldn't make their goals. So if you have skilled laborers rather than independent contractors, you could sort of sub them out as needed. And so that's really what took everything off. And Carnegie's action in that, it sort of murdered the European steel industry by integrating everything. Um, and we see this term come up in, up until I'd say about 1960, the integrated steel mill, where the steel mill was doing just this side of everything. Sometimes, like, uh, the only thing they wouldn't do a lot of the time is do their own mining, either for coal or for uh, iron ore and any of like the manganese, the cobalt, the whatever that they need to do other uh, do with other products to make the steel. Um, but they would do everything and everything would be made in house uh, structural beams, uh, wire rods, sheets, blocks, nails, whatever you need in mass quantities. And then, of course, once it gets to a machine shop, it could be shaped down from there. Uh, but the integrated steel mills would do all of those things, and that was an invention of Dale Carnegie. With uh, Bethlehem Steel, it benefited greatly from the location and the inexpensiveness of shipping. The Pennsylvania Railroad was also integral into making Bethlehem Steel what it was. Just the ability to put something on a rail right from the facility and send it on its way. Gotcha. 
and I, I believe it's Andrew yeah. Carnegie, right? Not not the self help book author who's also got the last name Carnegie, Dale Carnegie. I think it's Andrew yes. and Dale. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to. I, the, I'm sure there's some listeners who's going to write an angry comment, but um, <laughs> it's actually his kid, if I remember correctly. Like, that could be. Well, no. Oh, you mean the author? Kid. Oh, I don't. I don't think yeah, so. Yeah. I could be wrong yeah, about so that. Self help guy. Yeah, I'm not I, sure. Uh, can I jump in here? Yeah, please. So I have uh, two questions for Miles. One, would you say that kind of uh, the the watershed moment for Carnegie, for my uh, recollection, was kind of when he started engaging in large infrastructure projects, bridge building, things like that. And up to that point, that really hadn't been tested properly. Uh, no one really believed it would work. And that's kind of how he set himself apart from... Uh, the rest of the steel industry was taking on large industrial and infrastructure projects. Is that kind of accurate? Yes. Yeah, there was a lot of skepticism towards steel in the early days, especially really early on. Um, In fact, a lot of the demand for steel in a lot of projects had, uh, they only wanted tensile strength, and it was mostly used for reinforcement and buttressing, not not the only thing that would be used in construction. Um, so for instance, a lot of, uh, infrastructure, like bridges and things like that, they would be built out of stone or brick or concrete or what have you and reinforced with steel. Uh, but taking on larger, larger, stronger beam projects and the ability to make those and, and roll those out at a good rate, uh, that enabled a lot, a lot more expansion and development. All right. So when Bethlehem got started, um, Charles Schwab was working, uh, actually, yeah, he was kind of a protege of Carnegie and J.P. Morgan, if I remember correctly. And he uh, ended up getting this brand, Merchant of Death, later on, I think because he had associated with with Morgan and the, the uh, shipbuilding business for the militaries of Europe. Um, but did he kind of learn a lot of what made Bethlehem a successful company from Carnegie and, and did, did, uh, did Bethlehem exist really just to satisfy the demand for steel that Carnegie couldn't keep up with? Like, you know, there was so much pent up demand. There were so many new projects coming online and new ideas that one company just, you know, us steel couldn't handle it all. And so Bethlehem kind of filled that nice second level void uh, just to satisfy uh, domestic and foreign demand. I'm not aware of any sort of cross-pollination between U.S. Steel and Bethlehem Steel until the later days, during uh, mostly during labor disputes. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Bethlehem Steel, aside from being a... Uh, you got to keep in mind, there was no Amazon back in the day. Cro- over-the-road trucking wasn't a thing. There wasn't even a highway system. Right. You were entirely reliant upon rail and boats to get what you need where you needed it um, just for a little bit of perspective. So you needed wherever you wanted to have stuff, you typically had to have a production facility right then and there. Uh, So infrastructure on the Northeast coast of the United States, uh, that was obviously Bethlehem steel's primary market. Uh, But yeah, to fill the demand, you absolutely needed Bethlehem steel. Bethlehem steel was the number two steel producer. They never took over number one. Uh, They were always number two, but they, they produced, uh, tens of millions of tons of steel, steel every year, year year over year. Um, the demand, both internationally and nationally, was voracious, especially in the post World War II era. Well, that's another thing I wanted to ask. You brought up like you know localized production. Uh, this is not an era in where you could have just in time uh, logistics and inventory models, right? There was no. no 
you, there was no communication method. To, the best thing you had was the telegram, really. Mm. And, uh, you know, it, it was very difficult to coordinate resource expenditures. Um, I remember reading about the logistics that went into building the Empire State Building, which I think may have actually used Bethlehem Steel. And uh, it was so complex that the, the head of the project had to have every single delivery at the port and at the building site down to mathematical precision by the second. So he didn't overwhelm the road, you know, the kind of limited roadway and port and so on. Um, so how exactly did Bethlehem kind of build out its network in order to satisfy production in Pennsylvania and in other areas? You know, you said they didn't acquire mines, but that they kind of, you know, vertically or horizontally integrate pretty much everything else to make things as quick as possible. Well, Bethlehem Steel actually had several mines, um, oh, which really? were, they were forced to give up later. I'm sure U.S. Steel did as well. Uh, when I mentioned that earlier, uh, the integrated the the concept of an integrated steel mill, uh, I was mentioning that they did pretty much everything after the mining process. But Bethlehem Steel owned mines. Huh. Um, in fact, there were a number of facilities. Uh, I believe it was the Lackawanna County, uh, which we can definitely get into that later in during New York. the uh, labor portion of the show. Yes, um, Southern New York. Uh, they actually had a coal mine that was pretty much uh, within spitting distance of their production facility. Uh, they were unfortunately forced to close that. Um, but as far as uh, how they satisfied demand, they just sort of like uh, they just sort of blobbed out. Whenever they needed to expand, they just bought more stuff and made more steel, uh, just throwing money at it. And uh, this sort of paved the way for their downfall. They never really bothered to improve any of their facilities they were very very slow to adapt new processes uh so they stuck they, they stuck with a, a coke uh coke uh manufacturing methods um heat and pour methods like long after something like a basic oxygen forge was already in vogue um but as far as expansion is concerned yeah they just they built more stuff they would buy facilities um set up places on waterways, uh, build up a new facility, hire all the people, uh, and just get to making more steel. Yeah, th this is a, an era where there was no uh, Instagram startup, uh, $1 billion after two years of development by like a team of three guys to uh, an even larger company using when your, when your capital expenditure is like one percent <laughs> yeah this is like during the gold standard this is like when jp morgan had to be you know your friend to give you financing like getting financing for this type of project back then in some ways was easier because that's what was seen as where do you you could invest but in other ways because of just the lack of clarity of what the demand is going to be in the future given how long supply chains, uh, how long it takes to transport things, how slow communication was, uh, you took on a huge amount of risk when you invested in these massive facilities that were being built. Uh, and well, well, I, kind of I admire that a lot. Yeah, that kind of explains why in this era we had the industrial conglomerates, right? Because financing was difficult to acquire and to maintain. You know, Demand was difficult to ascertain and to quantify and so that's you know i think we talked about that in the bell labs episode there's no way that you could have done what bell labs did any other way but to have a mass you know vastly integrated 
set of smaller conglomerates built into a single labor force with you know a single overhead and so on and correct me if i'm wrong miles but bethlehem itself was kind of a conglomeration of east coast and west coast um steel making facilities shipbuilders and so on and it was kind of this uh, mishmash of different companies that existed from that pre-Carnegie era. They were all kind of failing or something like that. They were, none of them were doing particularly well. As opportunities arose, they sort of got absorbed into Bethlehem Steel. For instance, during World War II, uh, Bethlehem Steel shipbuilding facilities, um, they had unmatched capacity. They built something like 1,100 ships during the war and supplied parts at, or repaired another 3,000 uh, which is just insane. That's an, that's a nuts amount of production to be able to put out during the five years or so that the war ended up lasting. Um, yeah, I, I heard the, they were producing 15 ships a day, which uh, you'd have to tabulate, you know, exactly how many that is. But that's uh, quite a bit. Yeah, it, it's probably mm-hmm. about, you know, 11,000, as you said, uh, over the course of the war. 1100 1100 oh okay well it, it probably isn't 15 would be... yeah yeah that's what i thought I, you I said yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> yeah yeah cool uh, but no they have facilities on the west coast at least they did during the war um los angeles and i think south san francisco um and the yards there the, there was a there is a bethlehem yard uh, that is now owned by bae systems that is a ship repair facility in san francisco bay uh, but I, I would imagine they had some mills there too in South San Francisco. And then in Los Angeles, they were also building ships. I don't think they built the battleships themselves, but they did build a lot of the barrels uh, during World War II. So World War II was, was a huge uh, boon for steel, no question. Just a, ma- a massive Absolutely. amount of... Uh, they, they helped build the Chrysler Defense Works in Detroit, apparently, uh, where they made a lot of tanks. Uh, just the amount of plate steel that was required... Uh, for all these uh, these ships and tanks, and they even made uh, Bethlehem even made uh, aircraft parts, which uh, they, they, normally they you associate with aluminum, but apparently they they forged stuff out of steel. Didn't they help make the Golden Gate Bridge. They did. They did. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, you can so see they, so pictures they, of the Golden Gate with Bethlehem Cape. steel uh, banners on it when it's under construction. Well, so they had a capability basically because they were this. Sort of turn of the century integrated industrial conglomerate. There are advantages to that, and so they had the capability to engage in literally any kind of project you could think of. Am I right? Like you, you could engage in you know small wire manufacturing. You could engage in um, I, I don't know, like like those big flat wide I beams for infrastructure. You could create ship hulls. You know, you can only really do that when you have some giant company that can that has a labor force you can put on any kind of task, rather than super specialized into one specific kind of uh, manufacturing or tool. Yeah, the the glut came with a lot of advantages. Is that, and this is the era where the American workman knew you could rely on them to know just about anything, or be able to pick it up, or be able to contribute meaningfully to the creation of a process. Um, so you could talk to Bethlehem Steel, and if you have this new process, you could you can get people on that, and you could probably get something done. Um, that was one of the benefits of having such a large corporation is that you had a lot of experience to draw on, especially on the floor. 
uh, back when people needed to know what they were doing and not just relying upon one guy who knows, like, say, programming, another guy who does the, uh, like, metallurgy, and another guy who just pushes the button and cleans chips off of a machine, for instance. It was very, uh, a lot of the processes were uh, very skill-based. You really had to know what you were doing. And that was true even of the uh, the engineers. In fact, Bethlehem Steel had one of the, in the 30s to 40s to 50s, 60s, 70s, up until the end, they actually had a one of the finest research arms in all of industry. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't end up getting their money out of it, but it was still one of the best metallurgical re- research labs on the planet. In fact, uh, high-speed steel, uh, which is a tool steel, which will soon be making a comeback after we run out of carbide, uh, was actually invented at Bethlehem Steel. Yeah, it's just other, us. That's good stuff. What are some other other innovations? I uh, I'm not familiar with that. Um, I'm not aware of too terribly many innovations. Like I said, the research facility did not really get uh, the amount of money they put into the research facilities. They didn't really get their money's worth. A lot of it was refinements on existing processes. So for and a lot of it was metallurgical. Like for instance, yeah, uh, alloys, do we add one percent like manganese or one and a half percent manganese? You know what I mean? Yeah, and and that stuff is really um, critical to allowing a lot of the applications that steel is used for today. A lot of people know about stainless steel, which is actually you just dump a massive amount of chromium, which doesn't rust, but it's very shiny, into the uh, the iron, and you get this. Very shiny, uh, resistant to rust, uh, and fairly strong uh, steel. Uh, it's just quite quite expensive. It's about twice as expensive because chromium is somewhat rare. And you mentioned, I think, uh, molybdenum. Uh, I think you said that. Uh, that's that's one of the alloys used in, uh, or I think you said carbide. Excuse me. Uh, molybdenum is, I think, used in structural, but I, I could be wrong about that. Uh, the carbide stuff is usually for drill bits and things like that. That are you, you probably use them as a machinist. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, so uh, let me ask you a real quick question. So what's your tip on, on drill bit maintenance? You, you, you sharpen them there or you guys just throw them out and get new ones. I, I have to we do this, deal with this a, myself. Yeah. We actually don't use a whole lot of drills because of the size of what went on at Bethlehem steel. While I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, well now it's called Lehigh heavy forge and we'll get to that sort of when we touch on the history. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot of drilling going on. Um, in fact, a lot of the time, if a hole needed to be made in, a, in something, that was typically done at the forge, and then it was bored out. So you're talking like holes that are three and a half feet wide. Um, so it was very unusual. Uh, we yeah. did use an, end up using a lot of boring heads, spade bits, um, but very, very rarely do we actually use something like a twist drill. Right. And right. as far as maintenance is concerned, with, with something of that scale, um, and how much metal you're removing, a lot of the time a new drill will just be purchased for the job. Like, for instance, if we're drilling like, well, I, I was about to say like 11 sixteenths or something like that, but we never, uh, they never did anything that small. Um, so like inch and a half. You can get inch and a half twist drills. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, a new one would just be purchased for a job or it would be sitting around or we would, or they would send it out for a uh, tool sharpening. There are tool sharpening services all over the place. Yeah, and so, just to and give they people... Is they have, Go ahead, please. Uh, tool sharpening is whenever you have a metal bit that's supposed to be removing metal from other metal, eventually it's going to wear out. That sharp edge that you want on the bit, um, depending on your process, of course, is going to wear out over time. It's going to chip out. And there's more metal on there, obviously. So all you do is you send it to someone who knows what they're doing, and they'll grind off the bad parts, right. grind a fresh edge on it, 
and restore the cutting geometry. And I've seen drill bits, um, not necessarily at the steel, but at other places I've worked. Uh, we've gotten drills back so often. I've actually seen them go from about six inches to about one inch. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you you buy uh, drills, uh, and just while we're on the topic, just so if people aren't familiar with like what a machinist does, you, you basically you machine metal, so you, you configure a, a block of uh, block of cheese, you know, and you cut it up into something special, basically. But uh, obviously, it's much more difficult with a piece of steel. Cutting through wood is quite easy. Obviously, cutting through aluminum isn't that hard, actually. But steel, you can do it with steel, uh, but you have to have really sharp edges, uh, and they wear out pretty quickly, and they get really hot. Uh, you got to lubricate them, and you also, when you're doing this for a demanding customer that needs really high tolerances or high accuracy, uh, you you have to be good at it, and you have to have a, a plan that will actually remove the metal in a cost-effective way without like burning up a bunch of bits or machinery uh, and also not damaging the workpiece. And so the you're working in three dimensions and actually four dimensions over time because a lot of this takes time. And so you want to make the right amount of cuts. And today it's electronic, a lot of it, uh, because you have CNC machines uh, and five axial mills that like go in you know, crazy directions uh, and that run basically off a computer program. But... Back in the day, and I would imagine still uh, for for a lot of stuff where it's just really not worth programming it, you just do it by by hand. Uh, you have to have a very skilled machinist. And there, if you look at the older stuff that they used in World War II, some of the stuff you can actually buy, believe it or not, on auction sites. Uh, they're not necessarily that useful because they're kind of outdated. Uh, and then you have to have a electrical system set up to run them because they're often three phase which is really only for factories um, but you can buy converters for it but the older machines like there's literally like hand cranks and you know you move uh, the the cutting head down and then you slide the workpiece under it and then you kind of go in maybe a, a circle or a straight line uh, and then you you, gro- you groove out something you cut it down uh, and then you got your your finished product uh, but uh, w- when you guys are working on this stuff, is it all uh, is it all automated and you program it, or do you you do hand stuff? I mean, you mentioned a drill. Like you're obviously not grabbing a Dewalt and putting your hand on there. You probably have a a machine that has like a jig that holds everything together, so it's very precise. It goes in a certain direction. What what's yes. it like today versus back in the day, from your understanding? So the one of the things that's really changed is the introduction of computer automation to machinery tools. Um, from the initial metal lathe, um, there's a great video on YouTube called The Birth of Precision, or The Beginning of Precision, I forget which. And it talks about the, uh, the first guy to actually really lock a lathe down and very carefully mill out a rolling mill for a silk mill that created very flat, very even surfaces. Uh, by having a very straight, very precisely ground way, which is what the tool travels on, we call them the ways, um, and then it ran along on a uh, screw. So a screw mechanism would turn that, and then that would create a very straight, at the time at least, uh, very straight roller for the silk industry. Um, so typically what would uh, what we had what you had back in the days, you had a very large... Um, uh, for turning, uh, there's two different processes when it comes to machining, generally speaking. You have turning and then you have milling. In turning, the job rotates while the tool remains fixed. In milling, the tool rotates 
and the job remains fixed in order to remove material. Uh, so if you imagine like a drill bit um, and you like you're drilling out a piece of wood or something on your wall, you're trying to hang a picture. You have your drill bit in your hand. Uh, you, you click the trigger. The drill turns. Um, so imagine if you wanted to drill out something smaller and your drill was larger than your bit. And for some reason, you wanted to rotate the bit instead of the tool. Uh, that's sort of like turning. Um, and then obviously there are processes where this makes more sense. I, I've, I've made bowls around the this house way. And the, there are wooden lathes that you can do this on. Yeah. So when you make a bowl, you basically start with a, like a log. <laughs> and then you, mm -hmm. you stick the, uh, the cutting edge into the, the center of that log and then the the clamps are actually attached to the log and they spin the log and then it will cut slowly out the center of that log until you get a hollow center in other words a bowl uh, and then you, you shape it I mean it's a little more complicated when you want to get that rounded surface but that's probably the easiest example of like a lathe in action to do something that would make a hole yeah and yeah. And for CNC, uh, you have, or for machining, you obviously, you're not feeling anything out. You're not like, eh, do I want it a little thinner here? Do I want to add a little flourish there? No, because of the hardness of the material, you have to have a very rigid tool and you have to have a very hard tool and it has to be bound very tightly. Everything has to be very precisely controlled without a lot of slop. Not a lot of like, eh, I'm going to feel it out this way. You know what I mean? It's not, there's really not a whole lot of room for artistic expression, shall we say, when it comes to the machining parts um so everything has to be very tight and things will move uh at least in the um at least in back in the day you had very straight moves so things would be tapered uh typically and you would have to set it up and everything would just move in a straight line so you'd be taking straight cuts in whatever direction you wanted for turning same thing for milling uh you would set up for certain passes and certain cuts uh so for instance if you wanted to say turn down a gun barrel uh, looking at a very classic photograph of um, Bethlehem Steel, I believe this is the annex building. Uh, yeah, this is the yeah one of the annex buildings in in uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, so, for instance, looking at this uh, gun, you would set up you would be set up for a series of straight cuts. You turn the overall length. Uh, you turn a taper for most of the barrel. You turn a taper out for the muzzle end. Um, you would turn in certain uh, relief fixtures. You would then uh, bore out the barrel. Um, rifle the barrel, bore out the uh, chamber, and then then after that was done on the lathe, uh, then it would be taken over to a mill. A bunch of the different processes would be done. Like, for instance, you would add um, uh, locking mechanisms. The, the pivots on the side of the weapon would be then drilled into or mounted, however you do. Um, or if it was part of the barrel, like, for instance, if you imagine, like, an old-school cannon where the flanges sort of come out and that's how it locks onto the part. It's all one big metal piece. Um, that would be a circle, obviously, because the part is turning and you can only sort of machine in two dimensions. Uh, the bulk of that metal would then have to come off and then be milled into a circle, drilled into, and then you have your pivots. Fortunately, we do a podcast and not a uh, yeah. three-dimensional video cast where you can see exactly what he means. But uh, you can, I hope every, the audience can tell he's done this before and, and knows what he's talking about. And this is a, this is a difficult uh, process to, to set up and, and do. And, and today, you can kind of do like a hobbyist version of this in your garage. I've actually met people who have mills like that are heavier than their cars in their garage and their wife is like, what the hell is this? But, um, but you can make stuff today, uh, yourself. It's a lot easier than it used to be. But back in the day, you really had to work for a big company like this that had 
uh, the industrial stuff. And, and there are some really cool photos of uh, forges also where they're making these gigantic barrels um, or big, you know, in Germany, they have, I think, the largest forge in the world, or at least that, that was true until maybe China got online and did something bigger. Uh, but some of these photos are truly amazing to, to look at where you're just looking at the, the tonnage involved. And they these operations, these uh, machine shops, mills, forges, they have gantry cranes running over the ceiling because you're working in thousands of pounds, multiple tons. Nobody can lift these things. And so they have these massive chain hoists that pick everything up, move things over, and it's dangerous. Uh, if something breaks or somebody gets in the, in the way or something falls, they're done. Uh, and it was a lot worse back when this stuff was just getting started and there was no uh, OSHA, there was no... Uh, you know, real concern for uh, labors and, and unions were literally uh, broken up in physical form by uh, the Pennsylvania Iron and Coal Police, as James LaFond was mentioning last week, uh, that would go in and, and crack the skulls of these guys who would try to literally, uh, yeah, try to get better working conditions or better pay. And, you know, whether you think the unions are good or bad, anyone who works 12 hours a day in a blast furnace that is literally if they put their foot, you know, in front of, uh, you know, the molten metal, uh, they're not going to see a foot anymore. They're basically going to see a, a, a uh, cauterized, uh, leg that no longer has a foot that is now disintegrated. Uh, and they're, they're lifting these things for 12 hours. Uh, these crucibles, I think were probably hand lifted by teams of men. They would, and I got some uh, really cool details on the outfits they had to wear. They would wear um, huge leather uh, smocks that were just soaked in water because it was so hot. And we were talking, again, almost 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And so you're obviously not swimming in this stuff, uh, but the air around it is going to get super super uncomfortable and if you touch any of it you're dead and so in order to protect themselves they would wear these uh these massive coats of leather armor that were wet uh, and they would also put on these uh, wooden clogs up to four inches tall uh, I guess to, to not step on uh, a fallen uh, piece of uh, or puddle of, of molten metal. I'm not quite sure what that function served exactly, uh, but uh, obviously molten metal, hot ash, yeah. just hot spray everywhere. Slag was a huge issue. Um, yeah, the uh, to briefly describe the process that was used back in the day before a lot of the more um, safe, efficient, better processes were integrated or were added, invented and added to the process. Uh, you have a giant bubbling cauldron that was fired either by coal or by uh, natural gas or something. And it was just a giant open pit with a hole at the bottom that needed to be blasted open when it was done. And so what these guys would do is they would you have the, you have a big hole and if you have you get the iron in there, you get that nice and going. Uh, and then you have to throw stuff in there to mix it in. Like, for instance, you have to throw in your carbon. You have to throw in um, your manganese, your sulfur, uh, your this, your that, your other stuff, uh, oxidizers, all kinds of stuff, uh, rust inhibitors. 
whatever you got to do. And whenever you throw something in that hot, it's going to react because it's a different temperature. And so there was this interesting like move that everyone in the blast forge had to know where you shovel and then immediately like block your face. Sorry, I bought my microphone trying to demonstrate. Uh, I keep reading. This is a podcast and not a video thing. Um, but you got into a rhythm and you learned how to do it. And it was very uncomfortable working conditions. Um, a lot of the gantries that these guys would have to walk on were not, didn't have railings added to them until like the mid 1940s. So for nearly 50 years, a lot of the gantries, like you could fall off, you could fall off into a, uh, you could fall off into the, the crucibles where the steel was poured. Um, and then after it was mixed up, uh, you had all your stuff in there. You had a, forge a uh, guy on the forge who would look at it see like okay is this good how's it flowing how are we looking uh and then a explosive charge like a quarter stick of dynamite would have to be jammed into the slag at the bottom blown up a hole would actually be blown into the bottom of the the uh the crucible and then it would be poured and that's incredible and that that's that explains a lot because when i when i first uh, saw these images of these giant ladles and and crucibles being picked up i mean i don't know when the the mega ones were introduced uh but again these things are the size of like you know four cars uh at a certain point and they're filled with molten metal and just imagine uh, a solid piece of metal being lifted up and then uh, dropped on somebody. Imagine the amount of weight. I don't know how many tons that was, but you know we're talking 100 tons. I mean, I, probably not that much, but it has to be light enough that you can lift it and then pour it. Uh, but the inside of it, so the, the outside of the, the crucible where all this stuff is, is getting melted in uh, is, uh, is steel. And I was always confused, I'm like, well, how did the thing just not disintegrate? Because if, if it's you're melting the stuff inside, how's the outside not getting getting hot too? Well, they would have to line it with uh, these fire bricks, right? Uh, so those would resist melting. The melting point, I guess, of rock is higher than, than iron, or at least silica is, is is a higher melting point than than iron. That's typically what most rocks are made of. Uh, so those would be lining these things, and then. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine like having to blow these things up every time. Is there no like door that that could be designed that they could just throw a latch and the thing would pour out? Or is that something that happens later? Or is that, is that's, it still that's a process way? that happens later. Yeah. Okay. As the, uh, as crucible technology sort of improved, uh, they were at, they were able to add like poor spouts that could be manipulated without having to be blown. Right. Uh, but this is, at the time it was invented, it was like the 40s. By the time it was adopted, it was like the 60s, the 50s or 60s. Mm. Um, so for decades and decades, uh, you had people who were doing this. And this, um, the dangerous circumstances actually kind of added to a lot of the racial tension that came to a head in the 60s and 70s, mm. uh, where you had a rather parochial um, and sort of like old school racist view of a lot of different ethnic groups, American ethnic groups, where... Um, Management, uh, management. Uh, so the stereotype went: uh, the Germans, they were smart, so they got to be machinists. A lot of the Eastern Europeans, well, they're not nearly as good, so they work in the forge. Um, the Hungarians and the Czechs and sort of the Balts uh, and the Hispanics, of course, they get to go work in the uh, they get to go work in the the crucible area. They get to go work in the poor the poor area mm. where it's hot and sweaty and dirty, and a lot of people died. 
Wow. Is, uh, <laughs> look, I've worked in factories before. It's not that different today. I don't know in uh, where you work if it's all that different, but there's typically a lot of Hispanics that work in these types of uh, positions. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm just curious if that has changed. When I was there, uh, my facility, I worked in the machine shop and it was, it was an all white staff. Mm -hmm. I don't remember seeing anyone who was non-white. Yeah. Um, the interesting thing about working in industry is that you don't really have a like, like if you want to rabble rouse there, like file racial grievances, even today, you got nowhere to go. Like say Marquavius Jones shows up for an interview and says, I want to be a machinist, yo. And the man, the hiring manager says, Oh, we don't serve your kind darky. Get the hell out. Get the hell out. Well, what's he going to say? You know what I mean? Unless he recorded the conversation and he goes to a lawyer, who's going to say anything? The lawyer's going to say, why are you bothering me about a, a $15 an hour job at a machine shop? Yeah, I, I don't know if uh, the ADL understands how steel is made. So maybe you guys are lucky. But uh, it's just one of those industries that has just been so beaten down that I, uh, I'm almost happy to hear that you know they just leave you alone for once. Um, it's nice. Yeah, I bet. Um, probably not too many women working there too. What we know, in fact, uh, go ahead, go ahead, Miles. There's a fun story about that. While I was there, at, while I was there at uh, what's left of Bethlehem Steel, there was a uh, a new hire in the HR department who was uh, you know fresh out of college, saying we need to get more women on the work floor. And so the head foreman says, "Why is oh, they okay. die?" <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Come Let on, me take you, you know? on a tour around the shop. And the facility is old; it's not air conditioned. Um, it's barely lit, so we can. Uh, they barely did three shifts there. Um, most of it was natural sunlight. Uh, it wasn't heated at all ever. So everyone just sort of daisy chained a whole bunch of extension cords over from you know wherever they can rig it out of the wall and used little box heaters, you know, little foot heaters and uh -huh. butt heaters as best they could. And it was miserable hot in the summer and right. miserable cold in the winter. Um, so he walks her around the machine shop facility, which is old. The floors are cracked. Uh, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of dust. There's a lot of oil. And he sits down with her and says, so about getting more women. And she says, never mind. And goes right <laughs> to her office and starts working. <laughs> yeah. Be happy. You're in the office. <laughs> yeah. An air conditioned office. Enjoy it. Don't, mm. Not yeah. worth it. Yeah, yeah. So, why, so, why would similar you want to, to subject anyone who didn't volunteer for this to this? Well, yeah, that, that's another show. But uh, but um, Hans, yeah. uh, what's up, man? Well, I was curious, kind of, what happened to Bethlehem after World War II? You know, so it kind of hit American industry hits this uh, golden era in the 1950s, and then uh, you know, what is it like in the 50s? What big projects are they on? And then when does the decline really? come into play like the 60s and 70s when you know foreign steel competitors really come online and start knocking out america pieces of american industries but did bethlehem kind of follow that same trend yes exactly uh, ex it's exactly as you say uh so in the after in the post-world war ii era bethlehem steel was flush with profits uh nothing could go wrong it's like they just won the lottery because they basically had uh everywhere you would want to sell steel to was devastated by war. A massive amount of their infrastructure was completely shot. A lot of their best and brightest had been killed during the war. So they, like Europe had nothing going on. Uh, they couldn't really do anything. They were still shell-shot from the, from the conflict. Um, 
And then you have an entirely new workforce coming back over from the war, starting families and in need of jobs. And you have an entire, almost two continents that need rebuilding. So up until about 1974, which was the final, uh, they call it the Bonanza year, the last Bonanza year, um, U.S. Steel, the U.S. steel industry could not make enough steel. They could literally sell every every ounce of steel they could produce for whatever price they wanted because they had a global captive market. Uh, up through the 50s and 60s, uh, the big push for unionization, I believe, came in the 30s. And uh, this was countered by the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947. Um, so the, you had the, a big The founder of Bethlehem push. was able to keep the unions out until actually his death. And it was under Grace or Gracie, uh, his successor, that they, they first yeah. unionized. And it was, uh, I think, during the war, actually, because yes. the incredible demand that was placed on uh, labor uh, causing you know the, the huge migrations of uh, blacks basically to the shipyards and port towns, places like Los Angeles and Oakland uh, and Chicago, uh, basically for industrial labor purposes. Uh, the the unions had a lot more leverage because of that. There was just tremendous amount of need for industrial workers in these defense plants, uh, and I yep. think that's probably what caused it. In addition to the death of the founder. Uh, they they eventually got unionized at that point. Um, well, Eugene Grace was stridently anti-union. He he was a real hard fighter against the union. The trouble is, is that the trend up till that point, uh, because a lot of the leaders of industry were they all knew each other. Uh, they all were on a first name basis with each other. They went to the same parties. Uh, their kids went to the same colleges, etc. And you're talking about maybe like two dozen firms. So they, if this is not out of out of the question that these people all coordinated. Um, but in these big facilities, like that's that was just the way it was. Like you either work here or you don't work. Especially in Bethlehem, where a good chunk of the uh, working population was somehow related to Bethlehem Steel, whether it was the steel itself or whether it was one of the knock-on industries like restaurants, bars, uh, service, whatever, what have you, driving, anything you could think of. Um, so. At that point, I believe uh, a number of other larger facilities had been unionized and a number of the other ones had formed independent unions, uh, Bethlehem still being among them. They actually had sort of their own little internal union. Uh, but what was going on there was just a, uh, a damn shame. Like you had to uh, there were stories there about um, like if you if your boss didn't like you, you weren't getting promoted, period, end of discussion. Uh, and so you had to suck up to the boss. So you would be expected to pick up his, uh, his tab at the bar. Uh, if you wanted to feel up your wife, really nothing either you or your wife could say about it. Um, you were always paying for him wherever he went. It was it was bad. Um, if you've ever heard stereotypes about how the Japanese corporate ladder is, this was probably as bad, if not worse at the time. Yeah, uh, I've, so I've be- heard some ridiculous stories or anecdotes about the management at Bethlehem Steel. They were given a gold uh, nameplates on their desks. Uh, they would have a lunch tea time to play golf. Uh, and they even brought in models from New York, apparently, to train uh, escorts for the executives. Uh, they would dine on lobster, and they even had their own uh, cows uh, raised locally. 
so that they would have uh, sirloin steaks and whatnot uh, for these fine men, these gentlemen. And if you look at actually the the old school uh, board of directors biographies of Bethlehem Steel, it's quite a quite a, a kick because you really see that that extremely uh, Ivy League type uh, system that was obviously very predominant on the East Coast. Uh, typically for for wasps that would attend these elite universities uh, and their biographies would include their school, uh, their education, which was oftentimes very classical oriented. It wasn't even engineering or anything like that or business. It was like, you know, this man is is fluent in Greek and he understands, you know, what Homer wrote. And he attended Yale and he's, he's a, he's a Yale man. And he, you know, I don't know if they talked about skull and bones, but there, it was just that very elite in club that was the management. And they obviously were very well compensated. Uh, Eugene Grace was actually the highest paid executive in America in 1929. He received over a million dollars in salary, which was a hell of a lot of money back then. Uh, and yeah, that was incomprehensible amounts of cash back then. Yeah. Uh, well, a lot of the what you're talking about, uh, I've heard uh, a lot of it's just confirmed. A lot of the area before Bethlehem Steel sort of showed up and basically ran the town. A lot of it was underdeveloped in Bethlehem. And so they built several golf courses, one for their upper management, one for their middle management. And then they built a public golf course after a couple of years. So uh, the, you know, the normal plebs working on the working on the floor, the the scum, the riffraff, they could enjoy some golf too after after a bunch of union rabble rousing. Um but yeah, they had uh they had their own the executives and mid level the mid and high level executives, they had their own neighborhoods that were guarded by security twenty four seven. They were all in the same place. Uh Eugene Grace in particular, he fostered an attitude of like uh everything in the steel, nothing outside of the steel. He was sort of like a Benito Mussolini style where in the executive uh, corral, all of your friends and all of your acquaintances were all executives at Bethlehem Steel. All of them. Like, uh, just about every night of the week, you'd be going to some dinner party. Uh, you'd be expected to have uh, certain opinions. They were big in Nixon, um, not huge fans of Walter Mondale, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. Like, you had to have the right opinions. Women couldn't uh, drink too much or be too opinionated. Uh, very, a very tightly controlled. It was almost like he, he was sort of like the chic of his own little pocket empire. Sounds awesome, Bethlehem to Steel. be honest. <laughs> well, yeah, if you're the one running it, if you got <laughs> yeah, to deal with that kind of crap, I'll pass. Was it, was it very, like, 19, you know, uh, very uh, roaring 20s, a lot of art deco and, you know, Greco-Roman revivalism and uh, three-piece suits and that sort of thing? A lot of it, yeah. Um, I, I'm not familiar with... A, a lot of the homes have been either sold or foreclosed on. This is back, like... 60, 70 years ago, back when Eugene Grace was so relevant. Um, but yeah, that's that's the sort of attitude he fostered and really built at uh, Bethlehem Steel. And that attitude sort of trickled down where everyone was very defensive of their little fiefdom and anything outside of the fiefdom was not their problem. And everything inside of the fiefdom was directly under their thumb. Uh, but I think we could talk about that in a little bit and sort of the problems that led up to the collapse. Um, as far as the unionization goes... Uh, like I mentioned before, this the internal union that they had was just not working for the average worker. And so the United Steel Workers of America uh, came in. They managed to get union concessions in 1941, 42, I think. Um, and they managed to get uh, better pay, better working conditions, 
uh, overall in the beginning after much, much, much hard fighting. Well, the the unions um, also had very, and after you know, obviously the unions got power, not not initially, I would imagine, but when uh, the company went bankrupt, there were actually uh, thirty two job specific job designations for uh, mill workers. And the union wanted it that way. Uh, and it was very similar yep. in the automotive industry, whereby you were not allowed to compete with your brother in anything else. And it was all preordained and configured by the union, which from a business standpoint is awful because you cannot have these rigid arrangements when you have fluctuating demand, fluctuating prices uh, for your supplies. You need to be flexible. And a lot of the post-war, we're talking about you know what killed Bethlehem, a lot of the post-war competition, in particular Japan and Germany, uh, were were crushing the American industrial heartland once those countries were rebuilt because of stuff like this. Uh, and it's not to say that uh, you know the American worker himself is not necessarily capable, uh, but the the configuration and the arrogance of the management and the unions, frankly, uh, led to a lot of inability to adjust to the demand. There, I, I was studying um, years ago uh, the automotive industry in Japan. Uh, I've always been fascinated by how successful they, they were in building that industry to be a world champion, really. Uh, Toyota was, uh, in a, I think it's either Volkswagen or, or Toyota, but they, they were the largest car maker uh, for uh, quite a while, and it used to be General Motors. Uh, and they, they took the mantle from America with a lot of hard work discipline and, and smart execution and all that stuff. And one of the things that they do in their plants, uh, at least originally when they were just getting out of the war and rebuilding their country was their workers would do what they needed to do. If there was something, if something fell over, a guy would go pick it up. I mean, it wasn't like in, it was so absurd in the American factory. If, uh, and this was literally an example in Bethlehem, I believe if a light bulb went out, and you're a machinist, you're not allowed to change it because that's an electrician's job. And so yep. what this creates is like this, all these guys sitting around doing nothing until inevitably a light bulb goes out. Then, oh, the electrician drags his feet and he goes and gets the new light bulb and he unscrews the old one. Well, it's very inefficient, very slow, very expensive. And it's great when the rest of the world is on its knees. But, you know, when the rest of the world is hungry, it's being rebuilt. And it is being supported by U.S. foreign policy, which is intentionally trying to rebuild Japan and Germany to make them allies against the Soviet Union uh, and opening up the American market to competition. America is not going to be able to compete against that. Uh, so I think that that's, you know, the union, I think, is is fine, you know, when you've got sloppy management and lazy management, which I think Bethlehem did. But when both of them are lazy, the company's not going to be successful. So, um, yeah. There was a very adversarial because of the because of how hard it was to actually get unions into steel. There was always a very adversarial relationship between management and uh, labor. And uh, specifically what you're talking about is called the past practices clause that just murdered the steel industry in a lot of ways. Uh, clause 2B, if you ever look into this uh, past practices, essentially what would happen is that it was written into the steel contracts that anything that was added couldn't be taken away without quote an underlying change in conditions which was so ill-defined if at all that it meant basically nothing so the operative clause was nothing had changed uh to give a few examples 
there were um, well, one I can I can speak to personally. Uh, we had an instance where I was actively pulled off my machine and put in front of a manual lathe, small manual lathe, like a repair lathe, um, and told to uh, rethread some tie rods. We have tie rods as part of our fixturing process that they go into slots and T-nuts and uh, you bolt them down and it holds the job firm and steady. We needed more thread on a bunch of them. Uh, so, and you could do that no problem on a lathe. It just takes a little while. But because I was working the late shift this one time and the man, uh, the manager could do it just fine. He's a veteran of the machining industry, but union rules stipulate that if anyone on the floor can do it, management cannot. And I've been in the industry for 10 years. I know how to thread on a manual lathe. So I get put in front of a manual lathe and told to thread something. It only took a couple hours, not a big deal, but that's one of those things. It's, it's an inefficiency. I had to turn off a million dollar job to go work on something that wasn't making us any money. It was just frou-frou fixture stuff. Um, a grievance was filed over a member of management who saw that a sign had fallen off of its fixture and had brought it back in to have it like the little eyelets on them to have those put back in place so he could rechain it up. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. Someone, someone filed a grievance over that. There was a job that was put in, um, towards the end at the Lackawanna County, I believe, or Lackawanna facility, where uh, a guy who was injured at the time, he had his leg, like, shattered. And so until he got better and to, ke uh, to keep him working, his job was to turn on and off flood oil. His whole job, just turn on the flood oil while it's cutting to lubricate the uh, the cutting process, and then to turn it back off. It's something, you know, he keeps his job, and this is back in the days before unemployment insurance, uh, but because that he was doing that for long enough, which wasn't very long at all, it was a couple months, uh, that had been integrated as a past practice. And so you couldn't get rid of that. So that was that guy's whole job. And he was making like $20 an hour just to push a button twice a day. Um, in the days before in the forge, before they had air conditioning in the overhead cranes and in the control booths, they would have to change out every two hours. So you have uh, two people to do a single job. Which makes sense. I mean, you don't want to, you know, pass out from the heat and fall over. Heat injuries are actually very common in facilities like that that aren't air conditioned. But the secondary operator stayed on after air conditioning was installed because it was a past practice. And so rather than actually taking a hard line on that, uh, the company was forced to capitulate again and again and again. And that's the one thing that the United Steelworkers of America absolutely would not budge on. Pay cuts, they budged on several times. Uh, cost of living agreements, they budged on that. Uh, profit sharing got replaced a lot of the pay hikes. Um, dental, healthcare, the whole nine yards, they're willing to negotiate on that. But when it came to past practices, they were hardline, absolutely not. And from a union perspective, it makes sense. You want to save as many jobs as you can. And they did up until there was no more job to do. So they kind of shot themselves in the foot in the long run. Yeah, we had made them very uncompetitive. In fact, um, the average Beth member of Bethlehem Steel uh, and indeed uh, the steel industry at large towards the end there, they were making something like twenty six dollars an hour, which was uh, compared to an average like it's it, for when the when the book I uh, back in like the 1980s when the book I was reading was written. Yeah, that's fantastic money. Uh, average at the time was like 15. You're talking almost twice as much money for an easier job with easier circumstances. 
Yeah, we, we had a friend of the show um, who's in the Teamster Union come on, and we, we talked about unions with him. And, you know, I think he's he's relatively in favor of them, um, and I think he made the case for why it's important, because the American worker with offshoring and globalization really has taken the short end of the stick. Uh, if you look at the... Mm-hmm. The wage increases, uh, the median wage increases for the American worker from the 1950s to now, it basically went up until about 1970 something, 79 maybe, and it was uh, it's flatlined ever since. And the cost of yep. living has gone up um, for things like education, which everybody has to go to college. So, you know that that's just a crippling blow to your guy who's not making that much. Uh, so I don't. I don't hate unions. Uh, I really don't. Um, what I hate is bullshit like this. And when the union yeah. is, is so corrupt that it can't even understand that the long term matters too, not just now, uh, they ruin the company that they're in. That's not good. Uh, there needs to be a better way to, to work it out. I was going to ask you about um, the the German system, which with my understanding, and there is a big... Uh, metal workers union over there called IG Metall, uh, which has over 2 million members, which is amazing for a uh, first world country to have that many industrial workers um, in a union. Uh, but Germany is sort of exceptional in that they have a lot of industry still. They make cars, obviously, and in large quantities. And so that still is something that they do. Uh, but what my understanding is, that, and they do go on strike, but my understanding is that they have more of a board level position as opposed to a negotiated uh, salary position that happens every few years. Like the UAW has this with the the big three. They they will come up with these. They'll they'll strike and they'll go on strike for months sometimes. And then the GM and Ford will sort of talk to each other and like, okay, we got to give these guys something or, or, or they don't. Uh, but it really cripples the industry and it's it's sort of a periodic, um, antagonistic relationship that, that pops up once in a while in that industry, at least I don't, I'm not as familiar with the steel industries, uh, labor relations, but in Germany, they're supposed to, I think by actual um, government decree, by law, the union and management are actually supposed to be both on the board, which is an interesting model. And I've asked this to guys in American unions and asked them, do you think that would be you know, a good way to you know, avoid some of these crippling policies that actually kill the company, but at the same time, you, know, you want to have... Uh, you know, fair, fair wages and, and labor practices, but, you know, be respected and see, so have like a place at the board. Do you think that's possible in America? And they're like, yeah, that sounds great, but it would never happen. That's usually the attitude I get from these union guys. Um, and of course, yeah, yeah. if you ask management, you'll, you'll, you'll hear some slimy, you know, MBA talk, but they say the same thing. Like they hate each other. And I don't know if there's like a, a compromise between that where you can improve upon that. But what are your thoughts, Miles? There is a long stand, like I said, because of the the animosity and the violence of uh, the the union movement, the labor movement in the United States. There is a long standing animosity. Um, there's this bizarre, and I think it's I have my personal theories on why this is, uh, but the German system to me, because they are a single people 
and that's sort of just how Germans like to operate. They like to form these like these big Bund organizations, and that's just they do that regardless. Like they do that wherever they are. They did that in their settlements in Africa. They did it in their settlements in the United States. Um, they do it in Germany, obviously, and so that's just how they like to interact. In fact, there was a uh, Volkswagen facility in the United States that voted out its union. They said, the union's not doing anything for us. We're perfectly fine with what we got. We just, we don't want to pay any more dues. We don't want to deal with the union crap. Goodbye. And Volkswagen actually came in and said, nine, you will unionize or we're going to shove our boot up your ass. And so they were forced to accept the union because Germany, they like dealing with the union. It's just how they are. Um, by contrast in America, because... Like I mentioned earlier with the uh, ethnic strife going on at Bethlehem Steel, because of a lot of disparate ethnic groups uh, between the capital and working classes, you do have a lot of built-in strife, and that does turn bloody sometimes. And so the impetus with a lot of the capital class is to treat workers like disposable pawns, and as a response, the labor class's impetus is to try to bleed the company dry as fast as they can loot as much as they can, and then if the jobs dry up, oh well, we'll find something else. Um, with a more responsible union, you'd have a little bit more give and take, a little bit more back and forth, but because of the lack of good faith on both sides, it's very predatory. So both sides, both sides are just trying to fleece the other, and that's a big part of the problem with labor in America. Right. Um, and, and it's one of those things, like, in The Prisoner's Dilemma, both sides are just slamming on that defect button. Is there any better example, in the steel industry at least, uh, that is both a successful company and a good place to work? Uh, again, the, the new core example comes to mind, but it, this could be just propaganda. I don't, I don't know. I've never worked there. But the um, understanding I had, at least during the 80s and 90s when Nucor was kind of a hot company... The, um, the the workers would get stock, if I'm not mistaken. And so that was the, I remember this in the 90s a lot. This was the big corporate governance and incentive structure that was supposed to pave the way for the glories of American capitalism, where you the union, not the union, but the workers and the management would be aligned. The incentives would be aligned by joint stock ownership, basically. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and in theory, it makes some sense, but I, I don't know uh, what your take is on something like that, if it can improve uh, the company's performance and labor relations. That is a very large topic about the increasing financialization of the American economic landscape uh, and has to do more with the easy availability of credit more so than it does actual labor relations, in my opinion. Um specifically in its relationship to the stock market. But uh, as far as I'm aware, and they probably still do this, uh, back when I was at uh, Lehigh Abbey Forge, Bethlehem Steel, they uh, they had profit sharing, uh, not necessarily stock profit sharing. I mean, you had 401k, which of course had uh, Forge stock, but they had outright profit sharing where if you get enough stuff out the door and profits were good, you got a cut of that. In fact, um, we had guaranteed minimums uh so for instance our contract at the time i believe it was um a dollar and a half per hour per hour worked each quarter so for instance uh, uh a work year is about 2000 hours so each quarter you would get 500 hours if you worked your whole time uh 500 hours times a dollar and a half 
in a check, just here you go, here's your profit sharing. And then if we made more money, you would obviously get more on top of that. And there were quarters where guys were talking about like, we get $20 an hour profit sharing checks uh, just because the work was so good at the time and it kind of came in ebbs and flows. Per, per hour worked. Yes. That's pretty good. So you would be making more in a bonus check than you would for your actual yeah. time worked. It's like, what, 10 grand? <laughs> Something like that? Yeah, in a single check for a quarter, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah. Okay. And... Um, but as, as far as that's concerned, um, it depends on the company. There are a lot of companies that do the profit-sharing bit. Um, the trouble is a lot of the time if you have bad management, like you have to have, in my opinion, in order to make something like that work, you have to have a very hands-on management that actually really gives a crap about the company and isn't trying to actively destroy it. Uh, and I've worked for a number of companies that were actively just trying to destroy their own company so they can get their golden parachute and screw off. You have that like, oh, pro and that's sort of a recruitment tool. Like, oh, profit sharing is part of your compensation package. And then they'll find ways to make sure they're, quote unquote, not very profitable so you don't get a check. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not going to say like, oh, management's bad, worker good, worker good, management bad. I don't think it's that black and white. It's just it's no, such no, the a, workers are but the workers are buttholes. Absolutely. A lot of the time. I've I've worked in factories, and the, the, a lot of these people don't deserve the money they get. But the um, I, I I remember a woman would uh, I, I didn't know this because I was only there for you know a brief period, but uh, I heard you know from people who had been there longer that this woman would um, would get the aches on a calendar schedule, uh, basically summertime, she can go on vacation or something like that, uh, because um, she would get unemployment by claiming uh, disability. And she's overweight, you know, just sits in her chair all day. I'm like, give me a break. You know, you're not, you're not busting your butt. Um, and that was just, you know, a very small example of a relatively uh, underwhelming worker who was taking their little chance to loot the company but the management is just a, a more conniving uh version of that if if you know the example that you gave happens uh so it's it's just human nature that needs to be fixed and partly american culture in my in my opinion that needs to be fixed uh oh absolutely well it's it needs to be worked with so in, in the sort of environment of we're going to we're going to go at it hammer and tongs until one of us is dead or we worked it out. You know, we're going to have some wall to wall counseling with each other. That only works if you're forced to live with each other. If management can just say, uh, I'm yeeting this company over to China, then it doesn't work out because they're not forced to actually work with you. And that adversarial relationship doesn't produce anything except for this checkout attitude where we're just going to go set up shop in Vietnam or India or China or any other third world crap hole with the cheap price of labor. And we'll have our guys over there who actually kind of know what they're doing. And the only, the only thing that we actually need is people to like run hand tools or pro or push buttons. Yeah. So what, what's your take on uh, the Trump administration putting up tariffs on steel? Wilbur Ross, I'm sure is involved in that. Uh, he's the Commerce Secretary, I believe. Uh, and I mentioned his background before. He had International Steel Group. He made a lot of money actually buying up bankrupt companies like uh, parts of Bethlehem and enrolling them together and then selling them off to companies mm -hmm. like uh, ArcelorMittal, which is a huge Indian steel company. Um, and then I think he sold to uh, Russian companies, Severstal, if I'm not mistaken. But, um, but he's involved in the administration. And so Trump ran on the mandate or the policy of uh, having 
uh, manufacturing back in America for blue collar workers. Um, and I supported that. A lot of people supported that. Um, he's done a little bit on that. Uh, we don't have the 1950s, obviously, again, but uh, I'm happy he did that. I don't know if it's going to last. I don't know if it was enough. I don't know if it was done the right way, even. But uh, what are your thoughts on uh, trade policies like that? It's a really good first step. Uh, I am a huge fan of national trade protection. I am also a huge fan of class cooperation, which unfortunately doesn't happen a whole lot in America. Um, like we were talking about earlier, but I'm a huge fan of what Trump's been doing for the economy. Uh, I really think it's really just a, a, a solid first baby step. So in terms of like tariffing, you're not even talking about like trade protection. You're talking about like maybe giving a little bit of a leg up to industry here. Um, I, I think what Trump needed to do, especially politically is actively either subsidize or give interest free loans or something uh, really improve the state of automation, modular automation in the United States, uh, small scale independent startups that can network together. Cause that's the reason you had the big integrated mills is because if you needed to talk to, if the forge guy needed to talk to the roller guy, he needed to walk down the hallway and just knock on the guy's door and say, you know, Hey Bill, what's going on with these rollers? We're getting a little bit, uh, you know, we're getting some backlash down here. What's going on. And then they could talk it out with new, like if, if one company just wants to do like, we're just doing castings, uh, they can just do castings and then you just pick up a phone or you get on a Skype call or a zoom call. Um, and you tell them, Hey, this is the deal. You need to fix this. Plus the over the road trucking thanks to the United States highway system, uh, and the exploited labor going on there, of course, uh, mostly from Eastern Europeans and Indians, uh, they could take advantage of that, but more needs to be done to actively get U.S. industry to be competitive. And Trump has not, unfortunately not done that. I feel like because of what he does, he doesn't know the right steps to take. Like, you got to consider he he's a real estate guy. And so whenever he wants something like, hey, I want to build a big building, I'm going to build the best building. Let me call my, my guys who have the building stuff. And then it's on them. Once Trump can get the building stuff, but once like getting the building stuff, that's an entirely different matter and it's completely out of his hands and he doesn't necessarily know what goes into that. So have, and having someone in the industry, of course they're going to be biased and they're going to be more focused on their short-term profits and their golden parachute and their retirement and their stock portfolio mm -hmm. more so than the health of the industry overall and getting man, getting a good managerial class to actively give a crap about their workers. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, I think you're right about Trump not necessarily knowing everything, but he does know a fair amount of, about construction. I, I've seen enough interviews of him actually talking about you know I beams and the World Trade Center implausibly imploding like it did uh, to indicate that he understands some some structural uh, elements of what goes into building a, a building like that. But I think you're right overall. Um, American uh, government is completely idiotic in terms of understanding the economy uh i, I would, say would actively hostile actively hostile it, it is and and it, it's it's based on some arrogance and hubris and just ignorance frankly of how things work and and yes there is some hostility there uh from the environmental lobby from just this sort of uh 
snotty, snobby, east east coast, west coast, uh, coastal city, metropolitan type air to uh, that dirty work over there that actually builds everything that they're living in. But they don't understand how it's yeah, done. It's, uh, and it's this, I, go ahead. It's this bizarre attitude where I taking a look at some some leftist thought processes, what little of it there is. There's always this unspoken assumption of basically, I don't know how to put it, just um, post post scarcity. There's always this this assumption of post scarcity that whatever we need, it's there. Someone just needs to give it to us. That's right. Like all of the money. Like oh, he. Well, how do you think Obama's getting that money? Oh, he got it in a stash somewhere. That's how these people think. And that's a symptom of prosperity is you just assume that things are always going to be okay. It's an urban mindset. Urbanites, you know, serve a function. I I don't think cities should go away, but they're, um, if they're not interested or forced to know it from circumstance, they don't know about the supply chain that leads up to that city. Uh, and the example, Oh no, but no, that that's not even what I'm talking about. It's Mm. like, I can understand, like, yeah, the guy, the guy writing code in JavaScript for you know ten dollars an hour because Pajit will do it for nine, uh, if you let him. I understand the fact that he's not going to know all the nuances of like how steel gets taken out of the ground and turned into the heat sink in his laptop. I understand that. That's not his. That's not his role. I don't want him to know that. I want him to be good at his job. Um, the issue I'm talking about is that. He doesn't comprehend the fact that the steel needs to be taken out of the ground and processed to begin with. Like that thought literally just does not enter these people's heads. I know, I, and I've never understood why. I, I think it comes down again to personality. I think people are just—they're not interested in certain things, um, and it's understandable. Like, why would you spend time on something if you're not getting any benefit out of it? Um, but it's, it's dangerous. I, I think the analogy I was going to make was, and a lot of people say, you know, Rome or excuse me, America is like Rome. Uh, and I think the analogy is apt. Uh, others have compared it to other empires in which you can obviously do, but the, uh, the capital, you know, Rome itself was notorious for not producing anything. They would import mm-hmm. all their, their foodstuffs, their, uh, raw materials for construction. They would produce obviously the buildings uh but they didn't have any industry really they didn't have any farming because that was done in the in the provinces uh and they would export uh horse manure that was their chief export uh and it, it's like it's very analogous to i think american cities uh you don't produce and they, the they used to make stuff culture well sure uh hollywood and whatnot but uh they American cities actually used to be industrial centers. New York, mm-hmm. New York Harbor is uh, the East River is is as toxic as it is because of all the the factories. And there there was a lot of abuse of the environment. I don't think it's as simple as to say like you should you should do um, you know rip and roar like uh, like China does, and they, they've they've ruined a lot of their their countryside and and their land uh, like we used to do. Uh, the uh, the ride the Kali Yuga meme is basically based on the fact that the Kali Yuga River lit on fire from all the uh, toxic runoff that was coming out of the plants in Ohio. Uh, that's not good, and, and that's what actually, <laughs> somewhat ironically, caused Nixon to make the uh, EPA. Uh, I don't know what Bethlehem's uh, thoughts on 
the EPA was, but they probably didn't like they it. They were not big fans. Right. Um, a big a big part of the problem that faced the steel industry when it came to environmental regulations is that uh, one tax law in the United States did not allow them to depreciate assets as fast as they needed to to remain profitable. Uh, the other thing is that the EPA would come in with its big swing and dick, whap it out on the table and say, you got to add uh, filters to your smokestacks, roll it back up, leaving that gross stain on the table and then walk out the door. Yeah. And they then you have like a hundred million dollar bill on your hands. What are we supposed to do with this? Yeah. If, if anybody's ever tried to build a house or dealt with government inspectors, uh, sometimes they're OK, but oftentimes uh, or at least some of the times, unfortunately, they're, they're college kids, and they don't know what the hell they're talking about. They basically just wanted a nice office job, and they can only get a government job. And so they're basically bossing around people that actually know how to build things, and they don't know what the hell they're talking about. And, and the EPA strikes Petty me Heavy tyrants. Like, yeah, the example that, uh, that that's always my favorite of the EPA is the uh, the character. I forget his name, but it was in Ghostbusters with that uh, Peck, Walter Peck, I think is his name. He comes in, and he starts with this pencil neck. He starts yelling at them, and do this, do this, turn this off. And they, he... He blows literally up the, uh, the the ghost containment facility because <laughs> he, he didn't understand how it worked. Um, so I, I don't know if they're all that bad. I, I do think they serve a function, but they got to be good, obviously. Uh, Hans, you yeah. something? Well, if you've ever tried to come up with a idea for commercial real estate or any kind of industrial production in today's age, immediately you run into that problem. How long is the environmental impact report going to take? How long until we can get all the inspectors out here? How long until we do the post environmental impact report? And, you know, you know, it can be a five year process and it's millions of dollars and extra overhead cost. It's a, it's a time sink in that time period. You can lose engineers to other projects, you have to hire again. It's incredibly difficult to get a lot of commercial real estate of any kind other than sort of warehousing or uh, you know, third-party logistics hubs or anything like that uh, in, in effect these days, especially any kind of industrial production. And I remember I had an idea with a friend in college. He kind of came up with the basics of it, you know, and uh, I was going to help be the CTO of this burgeoning company right out of college. And the idea was pretty simple, was to do some kind of solar power copper smelting. And do it out somewhere in this, the American Southwest, or you get what? Uh, what temperature do you need to do that? You're using like mirrors and stuff. Yeah, I don't remember. I think it's like 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. I don't remember all this. Uh, aluminum's pretty he, easy, he but was, I didn't know about copper. That's interesting. He was the. Uh, I that was my mistake. He was the uh, the primary engineer on that. It was going to be small things, copper ingots and things like that. It was not going to be a large, totally large scale production. But I remember we were talking to a professor at the uh, the business school, and we walked him through the idea. He's like, this is a great idea. Uh, have you considered how long it's going to take you to do the environmental impact study? And uh, What, like, what no. impact? It's the sun. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> Give me a well, break. Doesn't doesn't matter. And he's like, have you you know have you have you looked into financing? Have you looked into how you're going to deal with the EPA? How you're going to deal with the state government apparatuses for environmental impact? How how you're going to deal with all this? How you know it, it doesn't matter. You have to go through all these steps. 
And well, I'd like I'd like to deal with the EPA in the manner that the Bundy Ranch dealt with the uh, Department of the Interior. That would be well, great. Right. I mean, I I should have just rounded up a posse of like drunk drunk college students and fended off the EPA agents. But I think on some level, it, it I had never really considered all those variables in, in business before. But it was it was kind of fascinating to see just how completely impossible it is to get a new industrial production operation up and going. And you'll see that a lot of the um, the growth in industry in the United States is actually uh, outside of, you know, the long-standing organizations with lots of institutional capital, lines of credit, legal uh, relations, lobbyists, and so on. So the big automakers are a good example. Tesla is probably one of the few recent examples. Um, but for the most part, you, you know, the growth in industry is primarily around uh, small niche items of robotics, consumer electronics, specialized electronic appliances, mostly for military contracting, honestly. Mm -hmm. uh, so this little idea that in the 30s or 40s or maybe even 1950s, we could have gotten up off the ground in a year and a half flat, could have gotten a line of credit, could have borrowed some money, used our own and could have you know started building right away. China China um, would have given you money to do it. See, that, that, that's yeah, the difference between suddenly, our government. Suddenly, our, you know, it becomes this, you know, it's a multi-million dollar operation effectively uh, over the course of 10 years just to get in production. And then there was this problem of, you know, that he pointed out to us as well, is that demand for that sort of thing is going to be low inside the United States because the United States, he wasn't necessarily endorsing this idea, but he pointed out the United States is a post-industrial uh, country in large, large respect. So, you know, he was saying the model that you're going for, the idea you have is fantastic. It's really sexy, like it, you know, it's straightforward. I like, you know, my my friend had done a lot of the CAD designs. It's very thorough, um, and basically, he said that you would have to look into exporting to really satiate demand that would justify the cost. So you can pay down your loans, your your industrial loans, your invoice factoring, all that, all that sort of financialization. And so then you have to worry about, OK, how the hell do we export? Like, how do we get this out of the United States? So then at that at that point, we're like, not only is this idea never this idea never going to happen, but it, it was just totally, uh, totally worthless. And, you know, we ended up working on like a small project for like tool supply inside the southwest. But other than that, it was uh, it was it, it was extremely enlightening, but also extremely disheartening to see, you know, just how difficult it was to actually get some kind of operation up and going with industry in an era in which credit is actually very cheap and there's an abundance of credit uh, to do anything major or even minor in that respect. And, you know, in the industrial world is uh, seems sort of hopeless. And I don't I don't know if something like Bethlehem Steel could be started from scratch today i just don't think it's possible anymore no no yeah. categorically not uh you you wouldn't be able to get your operation up and running without i don't know like five or six billion dollars yeah yeah it, yeah and and the technology would have to change i mean that that's one of the difficulties that bethlehem ran into they had just all this uh these old facilities and they were going up against foreign competition, but also mini mills 
that are in terms of just the labor input that you require it was something like uh 25 percent of the amount of workers required for that type of facility and it's much simpler too like you don't have you know these gigantic systems that are all leading into the finished product you basically just dump a bunch of scrap and then you melt it with electricity uh so yeah you don't need a lot of uh, a lot of people involved in that and they've uh, they've outstripped a lot of the the older techniques now I'm not necessarily against that. I'm just happy it's an American company. Um, but it is it is scary uh, for me and I think for a lot of other people who do this type of work. Uh, and you mentioned automation, Miles. The prospects of further automation to the point where you just no longer have a lot of workers. And I I don't know what the answer is given that we live in a competitive marketplace and if you just seal yourself off, and this has always been my worry about protectionism, although I don't, I'm not against it. It's just you have to somehow figure out how not to turn into a, you know, 19, uh, or Cuba is sort of famously uh, known as where the land where the cars were sealed in amber in 1954, whenever U- U.S. Uh, trade restrictions were placed in them. And they, they don't, they don't have uh, newer stuff there because they, they've been shut off. I mean, North Korea is another example. The Chinese model is interesting because they were very stagnant. They actually, uh, Mao was a huge fan of steel production, as it were, uh, but he did it in such a, a sloppy and, and ignorant way uh, to the point where obviously they were starving people to death because the central plans uh, from a poet are typically not uh, ag- keen agricultural policy. But when it came to industrial policy, uh, I don't remember the, the, the funny Chinese saying, they, I'm sure they had some uh, silly slogan attached to it, but they had this, um, they had this obsession with making steel. And the goal was to make more steel than the United Kingdom. Uh, at a certain point. And now China is now the largest steelmaker in the world by far. Uh, so they've succeeded, but it, it wasn't until they opened up uh, the economy. But before that, Mao was basically having every single little household or farm or collective take all of their uh, their metalware in the house, take it to a, a handmade forge, melt it down, ship it off to Shanghai or Beijing or wherever it is that they were going to uh, figure out what to do with it. Uh, and then they would uh, they would try to produce steel using this this very uh, backyard furnace approach, and it just didn't work. You have to adopt good practices. You can't just you know do everything you know on the farm, uh, Amish style, and be a world class nation. You can't, and you have to compete. And it really happened uh, for China when they started um, copying what Japan did, uh, which was copying what America did, but being very aggressive in internal investments, um, studying how to do industry, uh, protecting their, their native industry, but also really encouraging exports uh, so that you do have foreign competition to keep your industries uh, on, on their toes and, and investing in the latest, latest stuff. Uh, and so I think that's a model that I've always admired that maybe America could adopt. Uh, but the, the other thing, aside from foreign competition, is that automation. I don't know how you you solve that problem if you want people to be to be employed. I, I just don't know. Uh, but in your industry, Miles, like what what is uh, the opportunity and threat coming from automation in your view? Um, 
I had this conversation on another podcast with the guy who puts hamsters underwater. The trick with automation is that we're moving in the United States, at least we're moving to a more bespoke economy where there's less impetus to just make stuff, put it on the market and then withdraw it as it's not needed. So companies want exactly what they want when they want it in the exact way that they want it. And in order to get that kind of ability to retool that quickly in the manner that you need to to remain competitive, uh, that actually takes a lot of time and effort. So, for instance, back in the day, if you uh, if you could have a single process going where two or three guys could do that, uh, could make a certain part, like, say, a casting that gets machined in a couple places, uh, two or three guys could probably do that. Now you need at least five or six uh in order to get those numbers down, finish the job, package, test, box, get them out the door, and then retool for the next job. Uh, it's actually more labor intensive. So I don't think there's necessarily, at least not right now, until until we reach the point where someone can wheel over a robot to a machine and I could give it two or three hours of instruction and tell it to come find me if anything goes wrong or if something doesn't feel kosher, uh, until we reach that point of uh, data input and data interpretation in an AI, I don't think there's any any real threat of um, automation being a huge threat to manufacturing jobs, at least. Um, Over-the-road trucking, I think, is in, is probably the, the one that's most in danger. Uh, women time. are probably also the, yeah, women are probably also really in danger with the sex bot revolution because, uh, standards are so low anymore that literally a giant piece of silicone is a better companion, but that's neither here nor there. Um, Oh, that type of automation. Got it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So overall, I don't necessarily see a threat just yet, but I do see a lot of opportunity for, the opportunity is going to be in undercutting cheap Chinese labor and now Vietnamese and Indian labor, uh, undercutting that with robotic assistance where anything that needs to be made can be made in America. A lot of the grunt work can be done by programmable machines. Uh, runs of certain products can be short. They can be limited. The tooling can be kept around in storage because there's plenty of storage. We're building new warehouses all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. Everywhere I've ever lived, just has a glut of warehouse space. Uh, so, for instance, if a factory wants to start making drills, uh, they can set up an automated process to manufacture the motors, uh, to do small-scale casting. To uh, One company could do the small-scale casting. Copper winding, that could be done automatedly. Uh, that could be done via automation. Uh, plastic injection molding, uh, spindle grinding, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. And then all of that stuff, like all of those small-scale like tools and dies and stuff like that. Those could be just put in storage. Um, so I think that's the real opportunity in terms of employment and things like that do actually require a lot more hands-on work in order to tear down and rebuild, not while the production is going, but in order to tear down and rebuild. So for it's a lot, I liken it to a stage play where you have like maybe 10, 15 people all working on this stage play. They don't do anything during the run of the play except for maintenance. And you have like one guy on sound and two guys on lights. And then once the play is over, the run of the play is over in a month or uh, two weeks or whatever, uh, then the whole thing has to be torn down. And that takes again, 15, 16 people in order to do that. 
get it off the stage and ready for the next one. What, what's your, um, and th- this is um, something I've wondered about for a while, but um, I kind of dismissed it because I didn't think it would have the strength that you'd need. But what is your take on uh, 3D printing using laser centering for actually creating um, what you traditionally have to forge and then mill uh, out of, of solid blocks of metal? Uh, what is your take on the competition from 3D printing using a metal uh, metal powder? It depends on the application. There are a number of metal 3D printing uh, techniques going on, one of which is uh, FDM printing. Uh, they'll impregnate uh, FDM. I, I, do you have a 3D printer at all? Oh, no, I don't. I don't. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm looking at my 3D printer right now, which is on the opposite side of my room from my mill and my lathe. Um, so FDM printing is where you have a string, a coil of plastic. Think of a really long piece of spaghetti that's plastic. It gets fed into a hot end, which heats the plastic, liquefies it, and then it lays it down. Like if you've ever decorated a cake, think of doing that, but you're building a functional part, and obviously the extrusion is a lot smaller. Uh, They will impregnate that piece of filament with uh, typically 316 stainless steel, and then it goes through a process of melting off the binder material and then sintering together the metal. Uh, the trouble with 3D printing is that it is very, 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 very slow. It's very precise. It's great for certain applications. But as far as mass manufacturing methods, uh, it's way too slow in order to replace anything. But 3D printing is another one of those things that allows you to create very short runs with no waste. Right. Right. Because all you have is the part, the supports, which can be recycled. I mean, it's it's solid metal. And the part that goes to the customer that needs to be, you know, maybe it needs to be machine uh, machine finished, but there's no waste there. Everything that gets used in the process that isn't profit can be recycled somehow and goes right back into the process a lot of the time. Yeah, it seems uh, like the, so, the setup time uh, is, is a lot less. Even though the runtime is higher, you don't have to, you know, have a meeting with the machinists. Okay, how are we going to attack this thing? Talk to the engineers. Okay. Uh, and then you don't have to actually set up the, the tooling. Uh, and then in cases of um, stamping, metal stamping, you don't have to create actual custom dies for that sort of thing. So I could see for short runs, you, could, you actually might be faster, but the, the individual unit production time is probably very slow, as you say. Uh, but I think if you, if you have just one item that you're going to make, it's not really worth necessarily contracting or, or doing it in-house and then just getting assembling all those people and the machines and the tools to do it the traditional way because uh, it's super yeah. flexible you know so i think for short runs it's the it's still got that advantage but you don't see the advantage or the advances coming in uh the speed at which they print i mean semiconductors are i mean the, the integrated circuit uh microprocessors and all the the circuit boards basically are 3d printed i mean they're they're made by these super expensive machines but that's what they do and they do it obviously on a very micro scale and so when they pump them out um you can and they're very expensive too so you you get a lot of money out of these things but i guess for macro scale things it might not work but they they've had they've made tremendous uh, technological advances using material science and and uh just super low scale, uh, lithography, uh, very precise stuff. And the amount of money that's in time and research has been put into that industry has made tremendous advances. I wonder if people put that amount of work 
into 3D printing if it could catch up in the speed department. But I don't know. I, I've, I've just read about you're this gonna, stuff. Yeah. You're gonna see. Um, you're gonna see more advances. One of the big problems with upscaling 3D printing is simple physics. So, for instance, when you're talking about lithographing, you're talking about a. Uh, you're talking about creating something the size of your thumb. Um, and you're also talking about a uh, and and uh, the business end of the manufacturing process being very very small, which is not prone to physics hardly at all. Uh, by contrast, even something like my Ender Three 3D printer, um, that print head is about a half a pound, I think. And so you have to deal with physics. Uh, the print bed, which is I upgraded it to be glass, that is several pounds. So you have to physically slow down the machine in order to get curves and tight and you can't run it that fast otherwise it's going to shake itself apart um with laser centering that's not as big of an issue because you're just redirecting a mirror and it can work fairly fast but you still have to trace out the entire geometry of the part one laser blast at it or like one layer at a time however fine you want those layers to be or however fine they need to be uh so for instance drawing even a very complex lithographed chip it's going to be necessarily faster in principle than anything that's any bigger. I mean, to a point, obviously, you could, there's probably some like, yeah, you could probably 3D print a Benchy uh, on one of these ultra fast machines. A Benchy is a, just a it's a it, they call it Benchy because it's a benchmarking print. Um, you do it to calibrate your machine. Uh, it's a little like tugboat looking thing like from Steamboat Willie. Um, so you could probably print one of those on one of the ultra fast machines like a lot faster than that. But once you get bigger or more complex than that uh you start to run into the problem of just physics uh plus with something like plastic injection molding and this is a conversation i have with uh, my friends who are into wargaming do you think 3d printing is ever going to replace miniature wargaming and the answer is no of course not um because it takes me an hour and a half to print a space marine it takes games workshop 35 seconds to make 20 on mm -hmm. one mold machine. Mm -hmm. I mean, granted, the initial investment is a lot more, but they're going to bang out a lot more than I can. And that's just the difference in the technology. Same thing with casting. Uh, it also depends on your application. They're getting there with a lot of their formulations on sintering, but sintering uh, little bits of fried powder together is not going to be stronger than forging. Yeah, I never I never trusted the strength. Uh, it, it just didn't strike me as possible to get something that is literally like the heat of the core of the earth, you know, almost equivalent, uh, you know, when volcanoes erupt, you know, that's, that's what the core is, is producing and, um, or the mantle at least. And the, just the little, you know, back and forth on a, on a table. I just don't trust that. And casting has always been weaker than forging anyway. And so you get that beautiful grain structure when you have that high heat, high pressure at the same time. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear that that's actually, about right um but thank you for uh you know updating the listeners i hope that wasn't too uh you know inside Autistic. baseball but no I, I i think it's fascinating i mean a lot of people need to appreciate just how critical this stuff is and how much it's taken for granted and if we lose it which we've been losing for decades to asian competitors and the makidora factories in mexico not that Mexican companies are necessarily you know, being able to figure it all out and, and out-compete American companies, but the the labor um, skills are, are, are going away, and you're left with a nation that doesn't know how to change a tire. Uh, and it's it's not a good position to be in. And so I, I appreciate uh, the time that you've uh, 
you know, spent educating a lot of uh, us and myself included. Uh, and I think there needs to be more of that. I mean, the trades have been stripped out of high schools, for example, for decades. And I think it was uh, somewhat intentional uh, to remove a lot of the, the sort of industrial uh, skill sets in, in American workers. Um, I don't like that. I think some of it was just they, they thought that it would be a waste of time. And in some ways it was. But, you know, if you don't make it a priority, it's not going to be something that people value. Uh, and have as a skill to create these types of industries. So I think this stuff is important. Um, I don't expect the 50s are coming back, but I think with a shared appreciation for this type of work uh, and the understanding of how to do it, like Hans was saying, you know, bright young minds and ambitious people will create the industries of tomorrow, but they just have to have the right climate. The, the government needs to stop attacking them uh and create a better better system around it uh before i forget um i forgot to do this earlier but i just wanted to thank a couple people on the blockchain uh who donated over the past month or so um you you are not uh unappreciated or unnoticed uh it's very much uh welcome to our tiny little operation here, which we basically do for free. Uh, so thank you very much. If anybody wants a free book uh, and you donated, just email myth20c at tunanota.com. But just wanted to say thank you. Uh, and thank you, Miles, for coming on. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to, to add about you know what you'd like the, the industry or the people of America to know or about uh, Bethlehem or companies like that uh, before we, we sign off? Sure. Um... Well, I'm sure everyone in your audience is well aware that our nation isn't dying. It's being killed. And the people that do it have names and addresses. Um, and the other thing is, is that it's uh, for anyone to care. It's got to be worth it. Japan is going through. Japan is sort of the forerunner of this where they're having trouble getting people who are willing to weld and do HVAC and just do like normal stuff. Um, it's seen as low class. The money isn't there for it. They're not willing to. They're more willing than we are to support those industries, but not as willing. Um, and there, if you want to know where we're headed, if we don't break out into the race war 2021, uh, you can look at Japan. Just a dying a death of. Hey, what does it matter? I don't even care. So that's where we're headed. Mm. Yeah, if if we don't uh, turn it around, are there any positive uh, models out there right now that you you think are are worth learning from? The American spirit, I think, is still it's badly injured, but it's still alive. You do have a lot of manufacturing, a lot of lightweight, um, just this side of fly by night operations starting up, fulfilling demand, and actually doing pretty good work. And there is money to be made in it. I think the future of America isn't going to be the big conglomerate anymore. I think it's going to be small fiefdoms that are able to react nimbly and able to reorganize as quickly as they can. I think that's where the future is. Great. Let's cap it there, man. Yeah, sure. Uh, I have been Miles Poland, host of the Godcast. I could be heard at therightstuff.biz. I am also available on Third Rail at the same website. Okay. If you have any questions about Christianity, uh, its relationship to European history, any questions about the supernatural or Christian history, you can email me at thegodcasttjc at gmail.com. Thank you, Miles, for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
Stop.